So tonight, I have a long talk that we probably won't be able to do all of, but I'll do the best I can. Uh, last week, Danny Bernstein, Danny Bernstein asked me if I would talk about concentration and jhana, and I said I would, and, but he's not here this week. <laughs> but he promised me he would listen to it off the website. So Danny, this is for you. <laughs> um, so the term that we're looking at, that we're working with, that we call concentration in Buddhism is called samadhi. In the Pali language, it's called samadhi. samadhi. And this is true. It's the same word in Pali and Sanskrit. And it's the word that was used by the Buddha to talk about what we generally call concentration. And in Pali, the word is derived from a verb, meaning to put together or to collect. So that if you gather a bunch of sticks that are lying around, you collect them into one pile, you start to you gather them together, you, you get them together, you create a wholeness, all the sticks are in one place, everything's together, collected, present in one place. And for us it means to collect oneself in the sense that we collect ourselves in gathering our composure and our sense of being present, being fully here. It has um, implications for wholeness or, uh, or a sense of being unified, that our experience is unified. This is one of the hallmarks of concentration, is a sense of unification. And so the translation I like of samadhi that works the best for me personally is the unification of the body and the heart and mind. It's really bringing together the totality of our being. And wholeness is a really nice way to think about it. And we often will recognize it through that sense of feeling whole or feeling complete or feeling one with ourselves rather than the way we often feel kind of uh, un, um, uncollected or untogether or un disunified or, or um, uncomposed. And the word samadhi is classically, it's mostly used in terms of what's called sama samadhi, right concentration. And it's also used in many other ways in the Buddhist teaching. It's, it's used to de describe a variety of levels of concentration, from the beginning of concentration to the deepest level of what it means to be concentrated or unified. And so the Buddha talks about concentration in walking meditation, which is a great way to, to experience concentration. Or in mindfulness practice, that concentration is a very important component of mindfulness. Or if one is to contemplate the rising and passing of um, emotions and, and thoughts, that one needs to be concentrated. And then concentration is also synonymous with the word jhana or absorption, medit the meditative absorptions of jhana. And then it's also considered one of the bases or the, one of the, the basis for 
the mind and heart turning fully towards insight and towards awakening, towards nirvana or nirvana. And in the in a, um, the Mahayana tradition, of course, the, just for clarity, the um, the um, Pali text is from the Theravada tradition, the oldest existent um, recorded tradition of the Buddha. And later there was a certain development in Buddhism that's called the Mahayana, which is um, you have Zen and Chan and um, um, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, are later, slightly later development. In the Mahayana, here's one of the, and, and they don't refer to the Pali so much, they refer to Sanskrit. And so in Sanskrit, what um, um, Samadhi means is to establish or make firm. And then it's defined as collectedness of mind on a single object through the calming of mental activity. Collectedness of mind or heart, same word in, in the Asian traditions. The collectedness of mind and heart on a single object through the calming of mental activity. And so samadhi is a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing subject becomes one with the experiencing object. And what that simply means is that if I'm paying attention to the breath, that the separation between me paying attention and the, uh, the subject and the object, the breath, loses its duality. It becomes one. They melt into one another. Or the, the better way to say it is the um, obscuration or the delusion or the confusion of separation falls away. And the breath and the knowing of the breath become one thing. And so they say, samadhi is a non-dualistic state of consciousness in which the consciousness of the experiencing subject becomes one with the experienced object. Thus, there is only experiential content. There's only the experience. And the experience is known not from being separate from it, but in the, in the, in the absolute uh, immersion in the content itself, the contact with it. And they go on to say, this state of consciousness is referred to as one-pointedness of mind. This expression, however, is misleading because it, co it calls up the image of, co quote, concentration, unquote, on one point on which the mind is, quote, unquote, directed. However, samadhi is neither a straining concentration on one point, nor is the mind directed from here subject to their object, which would be a dualistic mode of experience. So they're pointing now towards the absorption of concentration, the absorption of samadhi, the depth, the, maybe the deepest level of samadhi or concentration. For our purposes, for the most part, concentration is um, it's, it's the best word we have in the English language. Some combination of concentration and composure and collectedness, some co combination of the three. But if, you, if we understand the etymology of concentration, I think it can be helpful. 
I have a friend who's a wordsmith. She's an etymologist, and so I shoot her emails from time to time and say, well, what does this actually mean, or where does this come from? And when I, when I asked her about concentration, she said, any word with center, C-E-N-T-R, centra, means the point around which a circle is drawn. The point around which a circle is drawn. And for me, that's a really lovely image of concentration. That we aim at the breath, but, but actually the concentration is very big. It's not just the breath. It's like you noticed even today as you, you were working with the breath, you know, the sounds are there and other feelings are there. Other things are there. We don't have to deny them. But we're just aiming and sustaining with one thing and letting that grow also. So there's a big circle. The awareness is actually big. And, and the Buddha, in one place, he talks about concentration as mahagatam chitta. Mahagatam chitta. It means an enlarged awareness. We always tend to think of concentration as a small awareness. But it may be slightly different. There may be that point, that, um, that point of, um, of, um, of kind of, I don't know the right word, coagulation in the center, an intensity in the center. But the awareness itself can be quite big when we're concentrated. And it, I believe it's one of the reasons why we like to watch people who are good athletes or good musicians. Or they're very concentrated, but their awareness is very open. Like in playing basketball, you can be very concentrated, but you know everything, you know, you're concentrated on the shot, but you know everything that's happening on the whole court. And so the awareness is not small, but the concentration is developed, is mature is powerful and this is one of the um, qualities that comes as concentration deepens is that concentration has a power to it. I'll say more a little later. <clears throat> so concentration, concentrum means to bring or draw to a common center. It's to bring things together to move towards the center or come together in one place or to uh, come into harmony or accord which is also one of the qualities of concentration uh, in, in, the, in the meditative arts you can't have an agitated concentration you can't have a concentration that is not have some harmony to it some sense of accord it means to um, um, to bring into union, to bring into harmony, to bring into a sense of it, it implies a certain amount of tranquility, a certain amount of pleasure and joy, because it's pleasurable, the tranquility, and then also a certain amount of equanimity. They ultimately are all parts of, of our um, concentration often connotating the resultant effect of increased intensity or power. And there's a power to concentration which I don't know if we value it in the West in the way it's valued in the Buddhist tradition. And by value, I mean that the Buddha valued it, that he, he named it over and over again. 
there, there are a number of lists in the Buddhist teachings and concentration keeps getting listed, keeps getting named. It's in the five spiritual factories, there's faculties, there's concentration. Or one of the five benefits of walking meditation is concentration. Or one of the twelve links of what's called transcendent dependent origination, which is a beautiful schema that takes you from faith to awakening. Concentration is one of the factors. Or in what are called the seven factors of enlightenment, which are qualities of mind that are present, that are needed for awakening. And they're, they're worth mentioning, the seven factors, because there's three tranquilizing or calming factors, which are, um, let me see if I can remember them now, tranquility, uh, concentration, or yeah, tranquility itself, concentration, and um, equanimity are the calming factors. And then energy, rapture, and investigation are the arousing factors of mind. And they're balanced by mindfulness. And when the, those seven factors are in play, are alive, are in balance in the mind, that's a place where mind can begin to perceive reality very deeply can begin to look very clearly at the nature of the way things are and perceive ultimately freedom, understand freedom. And of course, concentration is listed two ways in the Eightfold Noble Path. So the, the, the guideline, the, the, guide, the guidance that the Buddha offers us to practice, to live a life of awakening is outlined in the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is that there's um, right understanding, right intention, uh, right action, right livelihood, um, right action, right livelihood, right speech. And then the practice part is right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And by right, um, you could simply think of, um, people use various words, wise, wise understanding, wise mindfulness, skillful understanding, skillful concentration, um, beneficial is another word we could substitute for right. But what's interesting is not only does concentration, is it one of the limbs of the path, but the path is divided into three baskets. Right understanding and right uh, intention are the basket of wisdom. Right action, right livelihood, right speech the, is the basket of what's called sila or virtue. Virtue, we would translate it mostly crudely a little bit as morality. But virtue is a more accurate uh, translation because it really implies the power of being in, in alignment with our actions in the world. And then the last basket, which is, includes uh, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, is called the basket of samadhi. And so some, it points to the importance or the preeminence that the Buddha gives samadhi or concentration or collectedness, gathering ourselves, learning how to be undistracted in a certain way. For many years, I actually I couldn't understand it because we emphasize mindfulness so much, 
and and uh, in some ways it, in Spirit Rock a little bit we've underemphasized concentration, and yet concentration is extremely important for one's practice and for one's life. So the a concentrated mind. Uh, one other place that the Buddha emphasized concentration, mindfulness of the body. That mindfulness of the body is one of the ways to begin to collect, gather, unify the mind, the body, um, and the attention so that the concentration can deepen and can ripen to some of the deepest states of concentration, which is jhana or absorption. <clears throat> Now, a concentrated mind is talked about as a mind that's unified, that's collected, that's composed, that's focused, that's undistracted, that's um, whole, or has a sense of wholeness or oneness to it. And the Buddha said it's like a lake unruffled by any breeze. The concentrated mind is a faithful reflector that mirrors whatever is placed before it exactly as it is. So it's this power that, that as we combine concentration with mindfulness, we can begin to know things exactly as they are. We can begin to see very clearly the way things are. Also, when the mind is talked about in this way, as a concentrated mind, it's talked about as a mind that's soft, that's pure, that's bright, that's malleable. And, th and this is an important quality. The soft and malleable quality means that we can start to use the mind in the service of awakening. That the mind is, it's not only that the mind can focus, it's that we can incline the mind and use the power of the concentration to point anywhere we want and to begin to perceive, begin to penetrate reality where we look. And so the Buddha described his, his mind before he was awakened as bright, purified, malleable, soft. These are the qualities that can come. And, you, and it, it's quite startling uh, when the mind actually gets concentrated to see that you can kind of direct it or incline it in any direction and that it'll start to perceive, it'll start to understand quickly and easily that the actual power of our mind starts to get freed up with the concentration. Now, we have a certain amount of baggage with this word concentration and it's important to acknowledge it so that we're not so we don't obscure what we're doing so we're not tripped up by our conditioning around concentration and it's helpful to even reflect for yourself how concentration was used in your family in your world at school Many people, how many people here have an association with concentration as being tense or tight? Anybody? Okay. 
It's really good to see that, that we've been told, oh, if you don't concentrate, something bad will happen. Well, you better concentrate or you won't pass or you won't, get, you won't succeed if you don't concentrate. The association that we've mostly been uh, um, familiar with, that we're mostly familiar with, is to concentrate, is to strain, is to be tense, is to be tight, is to strive in some way. This is not sama samadhi. This is not right concentration. Right concentration, some of the qualities of right concentration include relaxation, joy, pleasure, ease. How's that sound for concentration? The other little bit of baggage that we may have around concentration is as concentration deepens it can be both very pleasurable and a little bit frightening at times to people because as, as we talked about at the beginning the subject and the object dualism starts to go away and we're not used to that we're used to being in, living in a dualistic world there's me and there's others that's how we know the world. And when that dualism starts to go away, it can be very disconcerting at times. And there can be a little fear of it, actually. We may want it, or we may be ambivalent. Maybe that's the best way to say it. We're actually ambivalent. You know, we go towards certain experiences of, of uh, absorption or being fully in our experience, but we also go away at times. This is from Rumi. He says, you've been fearful of being absorbed in the ground or drawn up by the air. Now your water bead lets go and you drop into the ocean. It drops into the ocean where it came from. It no longer has the form that it had, but it's still water. It is still water. The essence is the same. This giving up is not a repenting, it's a deep honoring of oneself. That our nature is closer to this non-dual reality than the dualism we used to. And part of the qualities of, especially the depth of concentration, one of the, one of the attributes that people often experience is this sense of wholeness or oneness or completeness and it feels often healing to people, like something gets healed. Something, it's almost like the level of relaxation and pleasure and satisfaction and contentment at the deeper levels of concentration. It's, something, it's so satisfying to the central nervous system because the whole thing just relaxes. Just, it almost stops. It can get very, very, very still. The whole body-mind phenomena can get extremely still and that stillness has a deep contentment in it, a deep pleasure, a deep recognition. It's like home. It's not quite home, but it's like home. And I say that because sometimes people mistake it for nirvana. 
because it's so pleasurable. It's not the end, but it's a really nice place to be on the path. Really nice place to be. So not only does concentration have these various qualities that we usually don't think of as like relaxation or joy or pleasure, contentment, but it's said in Buddhism that the proximate cause, that the factor of mind that supports concentration um, and the development of concentration is happiness. That the happier we are, actually the easier it is to get concentrated. And that the more the mind and heart are at ease or at peace or serene and happy, the more easily and naturally we concentrate. The more we're divided within us, the more we're letting our judge or our superego attack us, make us feel bad, it's harder to concentrate. It's much harder. If we let go, if we disengage from judgment, from superego, if we let ourselves be, if, we, if there's some sense of appreciation, of, of um, gratitude, if there is some, um, you know, that one of the powers of virtue, of ethical conduct, is, is one of the great gifts of ethical conduct is what's called blamelessness. That we don't attack ourselves. We don't have things to blame ourselves for. We don't have things to, that we have to feel guilty about. And it's one of the beauties and powers of virtue is that, and, and this is one way the whole path works together, is that it sets the stage for us to concentrate and actually enjoy our very being enjoy our very being because we're not having to worry about having lied or cheated or stolen or killed or any of that stuff or misused our sexuality or drugs or alcohol when we've let go of all of that then we can just be we can just be here and and it's and that power is so underestimated in our society partly because the society does not value being itself it values doing, getting, having, experiencing, rather than being. And in some ways, we could say the whole path, one, one way the path is outlined is it goes from understanding, understanding leads to our intention, our intention leads to action, our, our action becomes how we live our life in the world. Do we live a life of... Um, of uh, blamelessness or not, and then and then the um, part of our action becomes the action to go deeper in our practice and to um, make a, a kind of um, skillful effort and mindfulness and ultimately concentration. That they all build to a certain level of concentration, and as that concentration deepens, it it takes us to the next level of understanding. The first level of right view or right understanding is just to see there's a need for a path, there's a need for practice, there's a need to examine our life. And then as we get concentrated, there's deeper levels of right understanding where we start to perceive the nature of reality itself, the nature of what it is to be a human being, the nature of what it is to have a consciousness that can be self-reflective 
and that can know the truth and awaken. Now, within this consciousness, now I'm referring, I'm going to refer a little bit to Buddhist psychology. And there'll actually be a really good book on Buddhist psychology out probably in about a year. Jack Cornfield's been writing a book for a while that I've seen. It's, it's, it's a lovely book. And um, in, from the perspective of Buddhist psychology, um, concentration is a mental factor that's present in every state of consciousness. That there's a, just, to, just to be conscious is to have some level of concentration. And then the more collected it is, the more unified it is, the deeper it goes. It's an intensification of a quality of mind called one-pointedness. <clears throat> and it's a lot, it's talked about in the commentaries a lot about the centering of the mind. That the mind is both um, attentive and tranquil, unified and centered. I like the word centered because we know what it is to be centered. We all know when we're centered or we're off-centered. And so it's one way we can begin to think about when we're in, in our meditation, when do we feel centered or off-centered? In our life, when do we feel centered or off-centered? What does it mean to come back to center? To find our balance, to find our ground, to compose ourselves, to be collected, whether on the cushion or off the cushion. So the Buddha taught 40 different ways to practice concentration. There are 40 different concentration practices. We're not going to go through them tonight. I will mention the two that are most relevant for us in our practice. One is the practice of metta, of loving kindness. And it's practiced intensively on retreat where we say the phrases of loving kindness. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease. Those are just the bare minimum I'm giving you. Over and over and over and over and over again. Basically 24 hours a day. As much as you can. And you, you say the phrases for yourself, for a benefactor, for loved ones, for a neutral person, for difficult people, then for different categories of beings, all human beings, all non-human beings, all male beings, all female beings, all beings born, all beings who about to be born, whatever, different categories or different directions, all beings to the, to the north or to the south or east or west, above, below. And it's a fabulous practice. It's a fabulous practice to take a week or a month or a few months and just do this practice where you're just saying, you're just generating the feeling and the, um, the image and the, um, and the heart and mind of loving kindness. And people start to experience themselves as just radiating love, radiating love and kindness. And of course, as part of it's not all that. I want to be careful here. Of course, as part of the practice, for sometimes you're radiating hate, even though you're saying the same phrases, or you're radiating disgust or boredom or all kinds of stuff. You know, everything happens. But as the concentration deepens, your mind and your whole experience gets centered on these phrases, and 
everything else falls away at times. And I want to be careful here too because it's important to know concentration as a mental factor does what all mental factors do is it fluctuates. So even on an intensive retreat, it's not like it just goes down. It goes down like this. So it'll deepen, but it'll keep fluctuating. It'll go up and down. And from the state, as it goes down, as it deepens, then there are certain practices, certain ways to invoke the jhana states, the states of deeper and deeper absorptions. The other way that we practice um, concentration is called anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. That mindfulness of the breath is a basic, simple, and powerful way to practice concentration. And and even the the most basic breath meditation is partly concentration practice. And that practice of being with the breath can go, as I described at the beginning, where we get closer and closer to the breath, where we actually become absorbed in the breath. That there's no separation from the breath. There's just the breath being breathed and knowing itself and the pleasure of it and the absolute magic of our life's breath. The absolute mystery of our life's breath. And, you know, we've all breathed a lot of breaths in our life. And if you've been meditating a while, you've, you've actually watched the breath for a while. And sometimes it seems really boring and really ordinary and really it's not so interesting at times. But when the concentration starts to happen, the breath, it's like it's your best friend. It's beyond your best friend. It's like your best lover. It's so delicious. It's so satisfying. It's like, oh, I just want to devote myself. I don't want to go anywhere but the breath when that level of concentration starts to happen. And it's magical, it's alive, it's, it's indescribable, literally. Even though it's that ordinary breath, all of a sudden it's not ordinary at all. Each breath is quite amazing, quite unique, quite mysterious. It's like each baby emerging from the womb at birth. You, we always see how amazing it is, it's, this aliveness that's here. Each breath becomes like that. Life is here in each moment, the aliveness, the absolute truth of our aliveness. That's, and it's actually not on deep retreat either. It's right here. It's actually right here. But generally our minds aren't, don't have that sense of clarity, of, of, of malleability, of brightness to, to feel it but it can break through at any moment and it does you've each experienced it a moment in nature a moment with a lover a moment somewhere where every, all of a sudden the whole world is alive and not nothing special is even happening it's just alive because it is alive because it is magical or mysterious so there are a number of factors that get emphasized to as concentration develops and to develop concentration both. And in the guided meditation, I, I seeded the first two factors, which are called um, sometimes called applied and sustained thought, or more simply even aiming and sustaining, right? Aim at the breath, 
and then sustain. Aim and sustain. Those are factors of concentration. And if just to even know that as a technique and a way to practice, you can start to deepen your concentration by practicing aiming and sustaining with the breath. I think of it a little as, as connecting and devoting also. Sometimes I use aiming and sustaining, but I like to connect to the breath and then devote myself to one breath at a time and see what happens. And then some of the other factors, so um, um, aiming or initial application of mind, vitaka in Pali, and then sustaining the attention, uh, sustaining the application, vichara. And then the third factor is rapture or pity in, in Pali. And rapture in, 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 in this sense is a kind of energy and pleasure and joy all together. And it's part of what happens, it kind of builds naturally. As we aim and sustain at a certain point when we're really connected, there'll be this kind of pleasure and energy and fullness and a kind of delight, a joy. And then, and then with that, as that builds, they'll, we'll also notice a kind of happiness and contentment, the fourth factor. And then the fifth factor itself is one-pointedness, that there'll be a, a, what's called... Um, Oh, oh sometimes it's a kind of classical language that I like. It's singleness of preoccupation. Singleness of preoccupation. Like, that's all. There's not even a question of, oh, like we want to be on the breath. We're just, that's, we're, we're starting to get absorbed. That's part of the absorption quality. Hmm. So sometimes the initial application is like striking a bell. The sustaining is the ringing of the bell. The rapture can be if you enjoy that there's a pleasure in the sound of the bell. And then as you feel those, those three, as you feel yourself as that comes together, there's a happiness and then there's that unification, that one-pointedness all together. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm actually talking fast tonight because I'm trying to get so much in. But well, we'll see how much further we get. So the um, the antidotes, or, or one of the qualities of these five factors that's also helpful to know, is they are antidotes to the hindrances to meditation that the um, applying or the connecting with the breath is an antidote to sleepiness. And if you start to pay attention to the beginning of each breath and aim at it, it will actually rouse energy and make the mind less dull or less sleepy, less torpor. And that um, as the sustaining is, you know, of anchoring with the breath and feeling it, will drive away doubt, that there's a kind of confidence that comes as we see we can be with the breath in this way. And then rapture itself, this kind of energy and joy ameliorates aversion, and happiness will exclude restlessness and agitation, and um, one-pointedness counters um, desire, that there's not any more... Desire for other things becomes... It's like, who cares about other things? Actually, what's happening right now becomes so pleasurable, so unifying, 
Now we don't. It's there's not there's not the need to desire something else except to be right here. And again, I'm talking about a certain deepening level of concentration. It doesn't happen in every sitting, okay? Um, but when these five come together, they form a level of concentration that's called access concentration or neighborhood concentration. And what that means is that we're in the neighborhood or we have access to either jhana or to insight. And what I mean by that is now there's a collectedness, there's a depth of our collectedness, there's a richness to our presence that can we can pretty simply, not yeah, simply start to go towards jhana or towards insight itself, towards realizing the nature of things. And depending on the teacher and the heritage, the lineage, the different teachers will emphasize different things here. Some of my teachers emphasize insight, and some of my teachers emphasize concentration or jhana at this point. It, the teachers who emphasize insight actually don't want you to go into jhana. They want you to, to use the, the access concentration to practice what's called kanaka concentration or moment-by-moment -moment concentration. And this is generally how we teach the four foundations of mindfulness. Now to use a certain level of concentration to pay attention to not only our breath, but whatever, whatever becomes predominant in our experience, whatever comes into the foreground of our experience. So if it's a sound, then the concentration is fully with the sound. If it's emotion, the concentration, the wholeheartedness, the unity is fully with the emotion. If it's thinking, then it's being mindful, noticing the process of thinking fully. And if it's a sense of impermanence, then it's being fully with the sense of impermanence itself. Or if there's dukkha, then being aware of the suffering itself. So the concentration is strong, the mind is bright, it's purified, and it's aware of whatever's happening moment by moment by moment by moment. And this is the movement towards insight, because as we begin to discriminate or see or know directly the moment by moment by moment experience, reality will start to unveil itself. Reality will actually start to show itself. It's almost like the, 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 the veil of reality starts, a bright light starts to be shown and it starts to dissolve. The, the veil of illusion, excuse me, starts to dissolve within the light of this mind, this level of concentration and mindfulness. The movement towards Jhana is a movement towards a deeper level of concentration that some teachers, um, including the Buddha, he, he actually taught both ways. So there's also a way of going then into the jhanas, which are concentration of another order or another dimension. And I'm going to say a little bit about it and then we'll have to stop. But... Um, and it's hard to describe exactly. It's a little like if you think about <clears throat> how you understood sex before you had sex, you couldn't quite know what it was, right? I mean, you couldn't really get it. You could think about it and maybe you'd heard about it, 
but then you then you have sex. It's a, it's like a whole different order, and it's really you know it's kind of like wow, this is like you know whatever you thought, it's not exactly that. And then after a while, you know, five or ten or twenty or thirty years, sex is like not a big deal, right? It, John is just like that. John is like, at first, it's like, well, what is it? What is it? And you keep thinking, at least personally, I kept trying to think my way there. But then as I practiced and just stayed with the breathing, stayed with the breathing, at a certain point, I went into what's called jhana. But it was like of a whole different order of concentration than I knew. It was like going into another realm. And a beautiful realm, delicious realm, wonderful realm characterized by all five of these jhanic factors of this aiming, sustaining, rapture, happiness, and one-pointedness. And now they, they all go to another level. And it's almost like a little bit like you're in a bubble, but the bubble, you're very aware. and Or it's a little protected. It's totally protected from the hindrances. The, one of the predominant experiences is that you you the you put the mind on the breath and the mind stays and that's very cool it's like oh it actually stays and it might stay for you know 15 20 minutes at first or it might stay for hours you know an hour 3 hours 6 hours 8 hours just stays and then sooner or later like like all, everything the factors the conditions that allowed it to be there will fluctuate and dissolve and then, it, and then you go back to a little bit normal consciousness and then you start working to make it happen again, which you can. You learn how... It's, it's a skill, ultimately. Concentration is a skill. And jhana practice also is a skill. And the jhanas are described by the Buddha like this. I'll give you an example of one jhana, the first jhana. The practitioner, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, meaning the five hindrances, enters and remains in the first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by applied and sustained thought. This unity. And the, there's a little better one. Let me see. Do, do, do. Okay, here, abides, um, um, withdrawn from unskillful qualities, enters and remains in first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal accompanied by directed and applied thought, which just means the mind and the breath, it's applied and sustained. And then with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, one enters and remains in second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of composure, unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. What that means is actually the applied and sustained thought, any doing goes away. It starts happening on its own. And with the fading of rapture, one remains in equanimity, mindful and alert, and physically sensitive to pleasure. So what that means is then the rapture starts to fall away. The energy and the joy, actually that's a little gross. Each state gets more refined as you go through the first four jhanas, actually all the jhanas. But here's how the Buddha described it. He says, company, he says one permeates and pervades 
suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. There is nothing of one's entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. Just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that his ball of bath powder, saturated, moistened, permeated, within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the practitioner permeates, suffuses, and fills his very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. There is nothing of his entire body that is not unpervaded by rapture and pleasure. This is first jhana. That you get a little flavor of it there? It's it's pretty nice, jhana. It's pretty nice. And and for some people it's really helpful. It's especially helpful for people who first of all, some people are more drawn to that level of concentration. Not everybody is. Not everybody will go through jhana. And, and it's not needed. Everybody doesn't need to go through jhana. But for some people who are drawn, it's actually it's part of their karma, we could say. It also helps for aversive types. It's really good for aversive types because they're always cranky. And all of a sudden, they're experiencing this pleasure and delight and satisfaction that it helps, to, it helps them release their aversion helps them let go of their crankiness. And it builds composure, serenity. It has all these different... Um, it, it keeps refining the mind. And then the same thing happens. Whether you go from access concentration, neighborhood concentration to insight, or as you go through the jhanas, sooner or later you either stabilize at fourth jhana or there's some other jhanas. But let's just say fourth jhana... And then you do the same thing. You turn towards insight from there. Then you don't want to stay with the jhana. That's not the point. The point is always whatever level of concentration we have to develop it, to learn how to be skillful about it, and then to turn towards insight, towards freedom. And that's really the most important part is that concentration becomes a basis for freedom, for awakening, for insight. I'll end with the Buddha. He said, For one who is joyful, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who is joyful. For one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will. It is the natural law that one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. It is a natural law for one who is happy that the mind will be concentrated. For one who is concentrated, there is not need for an act of will. It is a natural law that for one who, with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.